Good day, sorcerer. This is one of your favorite hosts, Andy. I'm here to say I'm sorry. For you see, we recorded this episode in late September of 2021, as the U.S. was withdrawing from Afghanistan. But we're releasing this episode in early April 2022, because we're bad at what we do. That's basically all. Enjoy! Source, your home for George W. Bush fancast. My name's Nathan, your Afghanistan Afghan stand dealer. My name's Andy, your Iraq and Afghanistan are now democracies and they are allies in the cause of freedom and peace. Quote George W. Bush, host. Yikes. And I'm Pat, <laughs> your Mujahideen host. Oh, nice. Moadib? I am Usul. Paul Muad'Dib, our shared enemy, the Harkonnens, are once again in control of Arrakis. No. Oh. But maybe his name is a word of power. (laughs) It's our... (laughs) Yes, everybody, you got it right. It's our incredibly timely Afghanistan episode. (laughs) Yay! The thing that everybody is talking about. Woo! Ripped from the headlines. (laughs) Finally, you'll get to know what we think about it. Because, <laughs> but first, are so... how are you guys doing this week? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm good. I'm good. <laughs> I uh, am kind of like getting back into the. I'm, I'm finally kind of settling back into work. Um, I am excited for a new D and D campaign coming up. Nice. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. <laughs> All right, you you stop talking for long enough where I feel like I get to talk now. Um, yeah. I'm also excited for our new D&D thing. Uh, we did a fun change for this uh, next campaign where we... Uh, and I guess other people have done this before. It's certainly in the book as one of the options. But basically, instead of picking where all our stats will be, we rolled randomly... On all of our stats for our characters, I don't. Does our no, audience yeah, that's, care about D and D at all? That used to be <laughs> the way do. to do it. That that actually predates things like point by and uh, standard array. Like yeah, that that used to be the way you made characters. But it's fun because now we're in a position where instead of coming up with a concept for a character and then like mashing points into different uh, stats. To make that character, what we've done is we've rolled our stats, and then that what's that's what influences what character will ultimately be. And or, it's been a lot of fun coming up with those characters. Or what some of us may have done is created the type of character they wanted to create, regardless uh, before they ever rolled those dice, and regardless of what the dice came out to be, and just may not really be well suited for that archetype 
but is doing it <laughs> and anyway. just force the character they want. <laughs> nice. My my character is incredibly uh, fragile in some ways, and the thing that I've kept on telling you guys because like people in our group seem to be really concerned about my character and their yeah. very very low constitution. And I keep saying, like, my goal is not to, like, punch people as hard as I can. My goal is to tell a compelling story, and every story needs a Boromir. They took the little ones. He's down. Frodo. Where is Frodo? I let Frodo go. Then you did what I could not. I tried to take the ring from him. Beyond our reach now. Forgive me. I did not see. I have failed you all. No, Boromir. You fought bravely. You have kept your honor. Leave it. It is over. The world of men will fall. And all will come to darkness. And my city to ruin. I do not know what strength is in my blood, but I swear to you, I will not let the White City fall. Our people fail. Our people. Our people. And so <laughs> my character only lasts a little bit, and that's not my goal. But if she only lasts a little bit, she only lasts a little bit. I'm fine with that. Well, you know, I think... She's, <laughs> she's here for a good time, not a long time. Well, <laughs> creating a new character is like one of the most exciting parts about D&D for me. So if, like, if my character dies, you know, like this happened in our last campaign that we just sat down for for the time being where you know i was kind of in a position where like i was very vulnerable if i if i died i was gonna die die like for real for real not me andy obviously but um anyway uh and i don't know i play into that i lean into that and to a certain extent like i kind of at that point i don't want the character to die but i kind of do a little bit because like first of all that's a that's a big deal that's a traumatic event like the rest of the characters need to deal with that plus i get to make a new character and introduce and and, and join the group which is always an awkward dynamic for a while and makes for some interesting role playing because you know new guy wants to like prove their worth and uh ends up screwing things up it just always ends up being a lot of fun yeah Absolutely. Well, cool. I'm excited about that. Uh, I also spent like five hours cooking yesterday. Mm. I mean, 
I, uh, nice. We so um, my stepson Alex and uh, his uh, then fiance, now wife, uh, came mm. by for the first time since they got back from their honeymoon. Um, Where'd they go? And so they went to Peru Ooh. and uh, had a great time. Nice. Um, apparently, Peru is very very strict on masks. Oh, good. Um, which is great because there's a uh, there's a new strain of COVID down there. Oh, no. So uh, they were they were very very careful while they were there, um, and like almost didn't go, but decided to go anyway. Anyway, uh, but I spent all day like I made a I made a pot roast. I do this like uh, a strawberry salad where I cut up an entire carton of strawberries, put it in the salad along with uh, cucumber, celery, and some romaine lettuce. And then I toast pecans that I put on top, and I make this uh, honey lemon vinaigrette. Yum. It's a good salad, and I like. I partially like it because it's delicious, but mostly I. it's like a lot of things that I make are recipes that I found somewhere else that I have sort of like changed to be my own. Uh, but this is like 100% my own recipe, and uh, yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. Nice. So. It sounds delicious. Yep. So, uh, strawberry salad, uh, pot roast with uh, potatoes and carrots, and uh, made brownies for dessert. Nice. You barely so. need dessert after a sweet salad like that, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that's uh, that's the thing. Like it was it was definitely overkill. But the thing is, uh, I wanted something for us to sort of nosh on after the meal uh, because they had a couple hundred pictures that had taken in Peru. And another, uh, I remember this exactly, 663 pictures uh, that they had from the wedding. So we all sat down and, like, streamed them to the TV and watched them together. And just, yeah, just great. Just great. So. Awesome. Nice. Had an excellent day. What about you, Pat? How's your week been? Good. Um, I am in the works of applying to a new job. So we'll see how that pans out. Um, I'm probably... Still not going to announce where it is, even if I get it, but I will announce the results if I wind up getting the job. So that'll be exciting. Yeah, I mean, I wrote a cover letter, which I haven't written a cover letter in a long time, uh, but I thought I did a pretty good job. I sent it to Andy, and he gave it a once-over. Um, yeah. I, I really like creative writing, um, and I know that that's not the most creative of writing endeavors, Um but uh, I really enjoy just like, you know. It just depends on how honest you are in your cover letter. It could be very creative if you do it the wrong way. <laughs> That's fair. Um, but no, I mean, uh, yeah, I mean, I'm looking forward to that. It would be great to, uh, just between you and me, to be not in the business of uh, driving in the cold and uh, moving packages around in in the winter especially after the injury that i got last year that was directly related to kind of like you know people not shoveling their driveways or um even worse like you know all of the snow and ice like melting and then refreezing because then it becomes very slick and presumably it would be a new employer that wouldn't actively work against you uh, when you've injured yourself. Oh, uh, that's <laughs> like, neither here nor there, but, like, yeah, probably. 
Oh, and the fun thing is, if you do get a new job, we get to, like, call out your old employer then. Uh, that Let's burn some bridges, Pat. Mm, I mean, they'll still be on my resume for a while. <laughs> and this is all assuming that I even get the position that I'm applying for, which is not, not guaranteed, but got well, my fingers there, crossed. Yeah, there are other positions to apply for, too, but I, I wish you the best of luck. Uh, Thank you. Mu- much like Indeed. I wish... The good people of Afghanistan, the best of luck in the coming years. Mm, How's that mm. for a transition? Got it. Quality. It. Man, you nailed it. <laughs> so, yeah, we've been wanting... I, I will say I've wanted to hold off because I'm a little nervous about this episode because I think, we like, I, along with everybody else, keep on saying over and over again that this is such a complicated issue. And it is... And we've we've done some research and stuff like that. I haven't done nearly enough research. Well, you um, know what else you, is a complicated you, issue? Everything. Precious moments. <laughs> oh damn it! That's, <laughs> that's a later. short episode oh, right there. <laughs> that was smooth um, though. When I I also think just saying it's a complicated issue for some people is just a way of not having to talk about it. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy if we just kept on saying, like, if it's nervous to talk, if, if it's a nerve-wracking thing for me to talk about, and it's complicated, and I never feel like I'm ready, then I never have to talk about it. So let's just talk about it, shall we? Well, so if I can just tee us off, um, the conception of Afghanistan as, like, a, a nation in the way that, like, a lot of industrial and western and like post-world war ii nations are like nationalistic like right the people think of themselves as like oh i'm american or oh i'm chinese or oh, i'm russian like the way that afghanistan is set up it's a lot like a bunch of insulated tribes that are separated by mountains and it's very diverse. So there are at least 16 major ethnic groups that are represented in <laughs> Afghanistan. And furthermore, the borders that were drawn around Afghanistan were basically drawn by Westerners. They were drawn yeah. by the British during an invasion of Afghanistan, like a a colonial invasion so um like right off the bat if you're thinking of afghanistan as like being a industrialized western nationalist nation where people think of themselves as like afghanis your conception is already a little bit off um there's this long list i was going to read through it i don't know if this is actually that helpful but there's Pashtun, Tajik, Hazara, Uzbek, Imak, Turkmen, Baloch, Pashai, Nuristani, Guhar, Arab, Bruhui, Kizilbash, Pamiri, Kurzgiz, Sadat, and others. And that's just 16 <laughs> of the biggest ones. So. so I don't, yeah, oh, go ahead. No, go ahead. Well. I just feel like this might be a good time for me to jump in with a little bit of history about why Afghanistan has so many different kinds of people. 
sure. and why the borders are so loosey goosey. So, first of all, I I was doing a little bit of research on this, like I said, and I think one thing that is important to know is Afghanistan uh, historically is very sought after land because the Hindu Kush, which is a, a mountain range, when it when the snow melts, uh, it uh, feeds into Afghanistan, which is one of the most mountainous places in the world. But the thing is, when you have lots of mountains, the other thing you have lots of are valleys. And so what happens is this water comes in from the Hindu Kush and creates this, like, for the region, an incredibly lush, verdant area with lots of, uh, with lots of plants that mm-hmm. you can't really get anywhere else. So a lot of people over the years have wanted it. So one thing, this will not be, <laughs> this will not be comprehensive and it will not be exact, but I wanted to give an idea of like what I learned when I was trying to like look at some of the complicated history. So let's hop into the Wayback Machine, shall we? And go back to 700-ish BCE. Uh, that's when the Median Empire forms like the first sort of civilization in the area that we think of as Afghanistan now. Uh, we go from 700 to 550-ish BCE when the uh, Persian Achaemenid Empire uh, comes in and takes over the Median Empire. And then we jump from 550 to 320, and then Alexander, some people will call him, might call him the Great. I wouldn't call him the Great. He's just Alexander. Alexander the dickhead. Yeah, <laughs> Alexander. Um, and then what happens is Alexander dies, and uh, around 310-ish uh, BCE, uh, you, it starts. The area starts breaking up into a bunch of different groups. So you have the uh, Seleucid, you have the Greco-Bactrians, you have the Marians, you have the Parthian, uh, the Parthians, you have the Indo-Greeks, you have the Uzai, you have the Sakis, and then that takes us up to 100 BCE, where the Parthians, uh, who were one of those groups, took over pretty much everything until 80 years later, when the Surin Kingdom comes in. They're a bunch of Indo. Uh, Parians, and then 10 years later, the Kushan Empire comes in, and then a couple hundred years later, the Sassanid Persian Empire takes over, and so, like, for after that, I could keep going, but, like, this happens, like, 30 times. Like, the thing is, from 700 BCE, there's never been, like, a 200-year period, basically, where someone hasn't tried to come in and take the land over again and again and again and again. Uh, and it's inter- one of the interesting things is like, you know, there's never really been a good, a strong, like unifying and unifying and lasting ruler of any kind, but it's always been highly sought after. And, um, as for various resources throughout the ages, I mean, way back uh, in the, in the way back machine there, uh, it, it was the the tin that could be found in the region, uh, which was at that time super valuable because it would it would be w- melded with uh, copper to create bronze, which was a mm-hmm. lot stronger and, and made much better weapons and things and 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 but it was rare. Uh, and Afghanistan had that region was a, a resource for it. Um, later on, uh, you know, it's been. Um, oil, obviously, and and actually, recently, natural gas and other other natural minerals <laughs> are being uh, mined there that are super valuable. 
I believe. Opium has been a uh, uh, yeah. good one. Uh, there's that. There is that. <laughs> I don't know why but, I skipped but right I, over that. <laughs> and the thing is, I don't want to. I don't want to get buried in this. Like one one thing I realized as I was going through this is there's a reason why we all say this is complicated when we talk about the the especially the ancient past of Afghanistan because it's wildly wildly complicated. It's mm-hmm. hard to like. It, it's hard to go through everything in a way. I will say I do want to do one shout out. So in 1820, the Samanid Empire comes in. And uh, they decide to bring in a whole bunch of Turkish slaves, uh, which leads to, in 780 AD, the Ghaznavid Empire comes in, which is just the Turkish slaves overthrowing the Samanids, which I was like, hell yeah, you guys brought in too many slaves. You got to, like, right. Uh, That, no, sorry, that's all AD. Right, CE. Common Era. You're, You're Common Era. You shut your mouth. Well, so there's a really good reason for if you're in an isolated village that you probably think of yourself as the the ethnic group of you and your village and the right. people of the surrounding area and less so as an Afghani national. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Especially since you're probably isolated from those people by mountainous regions as well. Sure, and, um, you know, I think it's it's always been kind of uh, coalition-y. Um, they, they gang up on each other and uh, based on, I think, basically, like, who's religious enough and who isn't or something. Uh, you know, yeah. that's... <laughs> it's a very, very Muslim region, but being as... as uh, I don't want to say segregated because it has bad connotations but segmented i guess as it is um separated out into groups like that i mean you're you're going to get a different a, a pretty distinct uh flavor of of islam in each area in each region so another interesting point is if we fast forward to the last about a hundred years um what we've seen is a bunch of imperial powers that are regularly trying to uh first of all divide up the borders of afghanistan and say this is where the borders are whereas the people who live there are just kind of like yeah whatever okay (laughs) um right but also there is a history of afghanistan being the place where empires go to die um they believe that, like, you know, an empire that comes and tries to invade Afghanistan just doesn't have the time, the resources, the manpower, or the will to hold it in the way that the people of Afghanistan um, are are willing to scrounge around and defend their land. Um, the saying is that they have the watches, but we have the time. And this dates back to, um, clearly the U.S. occupation, but before that, the Russian occupation of Afghanistan and the British occupation of Mm -hmm. Afghanistan. It's an incredibly difficult region to move supplies in and out of, 
strategically, uh, just because of the mountainous regions. Um, there are very few places. There's a lot of desert and uh, non-arable land. So the places where you actually can grow food are like very strategically valuable. And uh, it's just like logistically, it's a nightmare to try and invade this place. Mm-hmm. And I think as we found out, <clears throat> because it is such a mountainous region, if you are a local and you want to get lost and uh, make it very hard for you to be found, there are plenty of hiding spaces up in those mountains and mm-hmm. it becomes virtually impossible for somebody to find you. Right. So, I'm, yes. I'm talking about Osama Bin Laden. Um, indeed. So, yeah, so I mean, I guess we haven't really mentioned uh, very much the all of the neighbors of Afghanistan that are... Um, I mean, I don't want to call them problematic countries, but like... Well, no, it's it's certainly a factor, yeah. Pakistan. You know, taking into account the, the neighbors, Afghanistan's neighbors, you know, you mentioned that it's entirely landlocked, and that means it's got a uh, someone on on all borders, um, and they're... They tend to be notable. So to the uh, to the south and the east, you've got Pakistan, India, and China. Uh, to the north, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, and Tajikistan. And to the west, you've got Iran and Iraq. Um, and then Saudi Arabia and, and, and uh, all of that business uh, in the Middle East. So uh, it is a... You know, it, not only are the all the resources there, it's a mountainous and, and, and all that that and had all those resources throughout the the millennia uh, to be invaded by, but it's also kind of in the middle of everything too. So it's in the this sort of crossroads region, um, right? Which means if you're going to try to invade them, you need to make some kind of alliance with at least one of their neighbors that I you mean, can move supplies in and out of. Yeah, at least, at least. Um, so, you know, it's it is who's who controls Afghanistan is important even still today. Absolutely, sure, yes. And and so, who does control Afghanistan today? Do you guys know anything about that? The Taliban. Uh, I don't know. Anyway. I'm sorry, I, I took so long to find a map that I don't, uh, I'm not really, I don't remember where we were headed uh, next, so. <laughs> I'm definitely not going to include that in the recording, though. <laughs> we'll just, we can just talk for a second, like, where were we headed next? Yeah, um, I was going to talk about the the British occupation briefly. Sounds good. The modern history of the West invading Afghanistan really starts with like the 1840s, uh, 1839 to 1842, when the British uh, invaded Afghanistan in the first Anglo-Afghan War. And um, one of the big factors in this war was just like the... It gets really cold there, um, it's really hard to 
move troops around. We've already seen like this uh, empire-breaking country, and but they wound up withdrawing from Afghanistan just because it was a logistical nightmare to yes. try and keep fighting there. Suffice to well, say, it didn't go well. Well, which is like one of the wildest things, just in general, because we've known this since 700 BCE. We've like we've known that this place is terrible to invade for all of its history, but people still keep on going in for their own various reasons. Mm-hmm. Who is after the British? Because they were not the last. Um, yeah, no. When did the British leave? Well, they left in 1842, and they came back in 1878. Of course they did. Well, and then... I So, <laughs> one of the few pieces of information I have is 1928 is the Afghan Civil War, which sort of sets them on the path that they would take for the next several decades. Mm-hmm. So, something happened between the late 1800s and the early 1900s. Right, so this is part of a campaign that Britain was trying to vie for international power against Russia. And so they were trying to take Afghanistan as part of what's called the Great Game. um, That they were trying to move their pawns around the board in order to surround Russia and limit their influence uh, internationally. Um, And again, like, it just is a really hard territory to hold. Um, 8,000 of the casualties on the British side were from just disease. And that's out of 9,850 fatalities. So, wow! even worse than the fighting was was just the logistics of moving around, of of being there. And the the exposure to, to new diseases from being in a new place. Right. And this was the time period when Britain's eyes were bigger than its stomach. Because, I mean, it takes over, or it invades uh, India. I guess occupies India in 1858. So it's like, throughout this whole time, they are going through that region and just taking over kind of whatever they want. And then realizing, uh, this doesn't work. We're not good at, like, actually holding countries. And the third Anglo-Afghan war was uh, during the period between World War One and World War Two. So okay. in 1919, um, they invaded Afghanistan again. Um, they were fighting off the emirate of Afghanistan who had invaded part of British India. And it ended with a treaty. Uh, they agreed basically to not cause trouble um, 
not to foment trouble on the British side. Hmm. Uh, the losses were pretty heavily it, on the Afghani side. Um, Britain was just coming off of the First World War and had all of this brand new military technology to bring to bear. Um, but they still weren't able to occupy this space. They were able to hold them off from attacking British India. Well, and you just gotta, you gotta feel like a culture has to be like intrinsically affected if for your entire ancient history, thousands of years long, your country for more than like a hundred or a couple hundred years at a time is never in the same hands. It's always changing hands. It's like the population is always changing and it's, that's, that's gotta affect the way you see yourselves and like how you, how, uh, I don't know, like how you look at borders, how you look at your leaders, things like that. It's got to always feel like sort of ephemeral. Right. And this is really the point that I'm driving at is like this real anti-imperialist sentiment. Like it's not even just who the British are or who the Russians are or who the United States is. Are. Are. Who the United States are. Um, that doesn't sound right either, but, um, (laughs) no, it wasn't the people of the United States are, but it's about, um, it's about not wanting to be occupied by external forces, which I think like, you know, we can really relate to not wanting to be occupied by the British. That was the whole American revolution. Yeah, I mean, it turns out not a lot of people want to be occupied by the British. I mean, there's still people who are saying we don't want to be occupied by the British. And, I mean, no one really listens, but... Right. Maybe it's because of their Scottish accents. No one takes them seriously. So, let's let's go ahead and fast forward here. Uh, I mentioned it before, but 1928, you have the Afghan Civil War. That goes till 1929, and the new government decides that it wants to modernize. It wants to be part of the international community, and it does just that. You you have uh, women start getting uh, rights. Not that, like, <laughs> women in America had particularly great rights in, like, the 1920s and 1930s, but... Fast forward to, say, the 1960s, 1970s, women have the ability to drive cars and get jobs, and they're wearing the latest, like, American fashions. And then you have a coup that the Russians help with, and Out I... Out of curiosity, if I could, uh, who's the leader of Russia at this time? So, yeah, Leonid Brezhnev is in charge of Russia, had just been elected... Um, so the the coup happens in 1973. Brezhnev is elected in 1972, and Russia wants to get into the Afghanistan business. And uh, it is a bloodless coup, I believe. There, like, there are a few different coups in there. I'm gonna have to throw in like a fact check right here. 
to make sure that I'm getting all the right information. But basically, overnight, the country changes from being this open, uh, this open society concerned with civil rights and equal rights for women into a very religious society, and it keeps on getting worse. It keeps on getting more and more uh, divided, and Russia is sending in helicopters and troops to, um, well, I don't know about troops, damn it. Like, I, I, don't, I don't know enough about this stuff. There were eight deaths, which is not completely bloodless, but almost there. I mean, that's about as bloodless as a coup gets. Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. In what the United States National Security Council described as a, quote, well-planned and swiftly executed coup, General Daoud Khan led forces in Kabul to overthrow the monarchy while the king was convalescing abroad in Italy. As Pat stated, eight people were killed, seven police officers, and one tank commander. King Mohammed Zahir Shah was overthrown, the monarchy was abolished, and a republic proclaimed. Khan, an army general and prince, proclaimed himself the first president of the Republic of Afghanistan. He remained president until April 27, 1978, during the next, less bloodless coup, when he and most of his family members were assassinated. In June 28, 2008, his body and those of his family were found in two separate mass graves outside the walls of Paul E. Charki Prison. Anyway, let's get back to the show. Right, so Russia is in here and they have these, I believe, Apache helicopters that are just coming, uh, doing these strafing runs through villages and killing people and... You have these soldiers who are normally, well, you have, I believe it's the Northern Alliance who shockingly lived in Northern Afghanistan, uh, also known as the Mujahideen. Um, And the Mujahideen, they are very interested, they're freedom fighters, and they're interested in getting the Russians out, but they don't have anything that can shoot down a helicopter. Hey. I know a country that loves to sell high-grade weapons to militias and terrorist groups that oh, are and definitely that country, gonna backfire later. And that country hates Russia. Oh, they do. They do. They would be super incentivized. <laughs> America. So that the country, the by CIA. the way, is this country. It's it's this one. It's the United States. It's, it's America. America. Love love America. But from so what I so the CIA sells them weapons, these... but also like releases all of this propaganda that's in favor of them. They had an interview at the White House with, I believe, President Reagan, um, where he interviewed the. Mujahideen fighters. Um, there's this very interesting clip, uh, the end credits of I think Rocky Two. Um, are there's a, a little clip that says uh, this film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen 
fighters of Afghanistan, which is crazy. And if you buy it on DVD now, they've like scrubbed that from the film. <laughs> <laughs> of course they have. Luckily, the internet exists, so you'll never be able to scrub it completely. <laughs> no. Uh, and um, and Times was like running articles about how great these Mujahideen were. And the thing is, there is a like a freaking great movie. I love Aaron Sorkin, who did The West Wing and The American President and a bunch of different stuff. But uh, he wrote a movie called Charlie Wilson's War. Mm. Uh, Charlie Wilson, being a senator who sort of got all this stuff done. Uh, and the the problem was, so we, we end up giving, the main thing that we end up giving to the Mujahideen are these shoulder-mounted side, sidewinder missiles. So that way you can stand on top of any hill, and if you see a Russian helicopter, it will basically, like, heat-seeking lock onto that helicopter and take it out. And so they go from not being able to shoot down any of these things to the Russians not being able to keep a helicopter in the air because we just keep on sending them missiles and missiles and missiles. And uh, they start succeeding to the point where Russia ends up, they show Russia the door and Russia leaves because they they can't possibly win this war anymore now that the Mujahideen have what they need. And it's not the only weapons they gave them. They they got plenty of American weapons, which, <laughs> spoiler alert, might come up later in this story. Um, well, right, and this this but, very expensive occupation of Afghanistan that ultimately resulted in a Russian loss was a huge factor in the collapse of the Soviet Union. Yeah. Um, you got to think about that, like, they're spending huge amounts of resources, huge amounts of money, sending troops trying to keep them supplied, trying to keep oil uh, in their tanks and helicopters that are there. And it it really bankrupted the whole empire. It wasn't the only factor, but it was a huge factor. And there's another thing that we should bring up here is the U.S. having come in and like helped wreck all kinds of hag- havoc on this country. Uh, it's not it's not that it was us doing the damage or whatever, but we definitely gave them the tools to be able to cause the damage and everything. Charlie Wilson comes in and starts trying to get schools and hospitals built and roads and infrastructure and things like that. And we spent billions upon billions upon billions of dollars in Afghanistan at this point and can't get anybody to vote for, like million dollar bills to be able to just get a like get a school built and so it was his thought that many of the problems that we have later on are because we didn't do the nation building and the goodwill gestures after the war was over the little stuff we we up the end game i believe is his like exact quote um because how many how many terrorists were born out of poverty and starvation and lack of education and lack of like healthcare because we we wouldn't spend a few million more after having spelt, spent untold billions in that country so just something to think about <laughs> this is all you know this is definitely one of those episodes where my catchphrase at the end will be i think applicable <laughs> a lot to, there's so f- much involved with all of this. With the, 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 I mean, we're still in the 70s, right? 
eighties now, maybe. Yeah, in the eighties now. Like I, whoa. But the There's good so news much. is uh, for so much. for those of us who want us to move faster, we get to skip an entire decade. We get to skip all of the nineties and go into the early two thousands, where I believe something happened. I mean, yeah. Well, that's if we're going to skip over the Taliban, who. Oh no! Go for it, please. Yeah, let's so the, not. Let's the not word Taliban. The word Taliban, it translates to students or seekers. Um, it's a faction that came into being um, during the the revolutionary period, and these were young men uh, of Pashtun heritage who actually left Afghanistan and went to go study in Pakistan. Um, uh, Pakistan uh, trained them and taught them this particular uh, form of Sharia Islamic law and militant Islamism and armed them and then sent them back into the country uh, when they were of age. And um, so in some ways, the, the Taliban are a direct influence of Pakistan on Afghanistan. These are their national sons that they sent off to go study um but really the the form of islam that they learned is uh pakistani which is interesting right. yeah well and and, and <clears throat> shockingly weirdly uh <laughs> they choose to leave out a lot of the parts of the quran when they're learning about these things um it's not it, they're they're like slightly worse Republicans, I would say. That's that's probably a good analogy. Uh, they, they're they're whatever. they're taught they're taught a bastardized version of this religion, and I they choose to fair. push that on the country. Yeah. So, um, you know, uh, something else going on. I mean, tensions are building during the nineties. Um, Afghanistan is definitely housed. Uh, uh, housing um per, uh, there are a number of different um militant islamic terrorist groups forming in afghanistan and the region uh and the u.s is taking preemptive strike actions there's uh operation infinite reach uh started by clinton in 98 uh, Doesn't which, that just sound evil? Like, yeah. like oh, infinite reach just right. like inherently sounds evil. Well, I mean, Clinton was like right there with the Bushes as like quintessential like neocon regime. Yeah, neoconservative regime change, like war hawk. Um, right. They are that. Here's you know, an American Biden president. is you know is one of the last of that ilk. Um, hopefully we will be moving on from them soon but anyway um so like so there were missile strikes the u.s the u.s was striking um a number of different bases especially al-qaeda bases in afghanistan um and and other nearby countries uh during the, the 90s 
especially in the late 90s, you know, uh, leading up to the the event that we alluded to earlier, 9-11. You know, I mean, it's not like 9-11 just happened out of nowhere. Right, and to contrast this with the Iraq War, which the Iraq War really had absolutely nothing to do with 9-11. There's, oh, no. there's actually maybe somewhat, if you squint your eyes and look at it cross-eyed, maybe a little bit more of a rationale to invade Afghanistan. I still don't think it was a good idea, but the terrorist cells that were operating there were a valid U.S. concern. So, from what I understand, the U.S. told the Taliban, hey, you have Osama bin Laden, give him to us. The Taliban said, we need to see proof that he did it. And it was the Bush administration, and they don't show anybody anything, and they wanted an excuse to invade the Middle East. So, that that's what gave yeah. them the excuse. But the Pretty Taliban, as, as of, like, I found a quote from, like, the end of August of this year saying, like, there was never any proof that Osama bin Laden caused 9-11. Like, now they don't think that he did it, much less back then. So they didn't, they didn't, give, it to, they didn't give us Osama bin Laden, and that's what gave us the excuse to go into Afghanistan as bin Laden was like, well, this sucks, and, like, snuck out to Pakistan. Well, as... George W. Bush said in a speech in Hyatt at the in Hyatt Regency in Irvine, California, on April twenty fourth, two thousand and six. Quote: I can look you in the eye and tell you I feel I've tried to solve the problem diplomatically to the max, and would have committed troops both in Afghanistan and Iraq, knowing what I know today. So. Isn't it weird that he's no longer the worst president we ever had? <laughs> it like, that is yikes, crazy. dude. Well, I mean, that, that, that whole quote is like, big yikes for me, bro. Oh, yeah. man. Oh, well, how it's about terrible. this one, then? How about this one? So, uh, this is uh, from a TV documentary, Elusive Peace, Israel and the Arabs, uh, produced by BBC, it looks like, in October on October 6th, 2005, I guess. Uh I'm driven with a mission from God. God would tell me, George, go and fight those terrorists in Afghanistan. And I did. And then God would tell me, George, go and end the tyranny in Iraq. And I did. So. Yikes. Yeah, when when God is telling you to do stuff, <laughs> no, no offense to Pat and our other religious listeners. You know, you, you might want to just double check that before you go do the thing. Or, mm-hmm. shockingly, and I, I know this might be hard to understand, it's possible that he was using his religion as a bullshit smokescreen to do whatever the fuck he wanted. But that's unlikely. I don't think that's... Well, that's the thing about that. commandments from God is that you don't really question them. Like, you just cut, go do them. <laughs> so, and you can't really, like... You, you can't really, like, question Fact. somebody else fact check those no man so anyway he is a uh war criminal and uh over a, a million people are dead because he lied to the u.s about getting into mostly iraq but also definitely for sure afghanistan 
he's a he's a monster. Let's never forget about that. No matter how much candy he gives to Michelle Obama. Huh. Uh. <clears throat> one more. One more. Just one more. <laughs> this is this is from a presidential State of the Union address in two thousand four. Uh, January twentieth, two thousand four. For what it's worth. Quote. The men and women of Afghanistan are building a nation that is free and proud and fighting terror, and America is honored to be their friend. So. Oh, that's nice. That one's nice. <laughs> it's so true, too, right? I mean, since 2004, they've done nothing but build a free and proud nation that fights terror. Yeah. So, so anyway, uh, it's we, possible that we f***ed up the, the end game, as uh, Charlie Wilson might say. So we've got, um, now we have caught <clears throat> up in time to the beginning of the longest war in American history. 20, 20 years. We did it. Uh, <laughs> We're number one. Coalition fighters, um, we've lost... Uh, three thousand five hundred and seventy-six from the coalition, and somewhere right around seventy thousand plus or minus Afghan security forces, which is an insane number. Um, completely dwarfs the th- uh, three and a half thousand um, coalition forces and the twenty-two thousand wounded from the coalition um we've killed about 53,000 Taliban insurgents and about 2,000 al-Qaeda fighters um and 2,400 from ISIL which is another distinct group mm-hmm. um and you know the most recent news coming out is the u.s's withdrawal i know we're not quite there yet but like at this point in time we kind of have to reflect back and and think about like you know have we gained anything from this was this worth it real quick have... did you sorry did you have... uh did you do the how much money we've spent Oh no, I haven't covered. I haven't covered. Oh, you didn't money. even get to that yet. Sh- should we do that too? Because I mean, if you're talking about, uh, sure. you know, what the costs of the war are that we need to outweigh, I mean, we got to figure that part, right? Well, and I also sure. think the 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 <laughs> I I do want to talk about money at some point, but the other thing I want to talk about is because of the lack of infrastructure in the country and because of how dangerous it was. It will be impossible for us to ever know exactly how many civilians were killed because of our actions in that country. Right. Because the, of what we stirred up. The estimate that I have is about 46,000, but... And, man, I have trouble believing that. Like, I, it's... And that's fine. Like, that already pretty awful. Like, right. Yeah, but if I could, awful. if I could just put a, an exclamation point on on my point from before, we have to reflect back on like, have American interests been served in this war? Are we safer today than we were in two thousand one before the invasion? Is the world safer? 
have we done a service for humanity and was the whole thing worth it i don't just mean in terms of dollars but sure we could also talk dollars um but but on the whole like was this a worthwhile venture and i think it's going to be pretty easy to conclude like no none of these things like we are not safer our interests weren't served it wasn't worth it and the people who died really did not have to I think probably the only people who, like, I guess overall netted a benefit from it are the people who, you know, the defense contractors and construction companies and uh, weapons manufacturers and et cetera, et cetera, that got all of, that all that money was funneled to. Right. But I think the difficult thing to talk about with all this is... If you were, there's there's a bunch of different things, but <laughs> if you were specifically a woman in Afghanistan for the last 20 years, your life has been objectively better than it was before. I mean, and the thing mm-hmm. is, yeah, that is a cruelty all of its own. Because and better, better in, than it will be again. Yes. And the thing is, we came in and we offered this glimpse of, like, this is this is what could happen. And it's not that it was a good life. It's not that it was safe. It's not that, like, there weren't horrible problems. But as far as the state was concerned, the government that we had installed was going to give women certain rights that they didn't have before. And so you have a whole generation of people who have grown, grown up knowing those rights— and now it's been taken away from them. And that's that sucks. And it's been used as a cudgel uh, against, uh, I would say, mostly Biden. Uh, but a lot of people that's like, well, look, we have to stay there forever because, look, these people have better lives. And, like, their lives are going to be terrible now because we left. And, like, I think the point is more like we shouldn't have been there in the first place. Like, we should have been working towards making people's lives better by supporting the people of Afghanistan. Right. And Uh, and the question really has to be asked, like, has the U.S. ever made a humanitarian war? Like, is, is there such thing as a morally justified humanitarian cause for a war have we ever done that? Which, no, we have not. And I mean, would it make well, sense to do something like that in the future? Like, the plight of Afghani women is horrible. And, and I think that that's what, a real shame. I, I don't think that we've ever acted in anything other than what we perceive as, which can be wrong, uh, as our national interest like first last and always and 100 percent never the reason why we were there right like it was a side effect of us having been there for oil right you know i mean would it be morally correct for us to go to war in order to make the world a better place in order to like fulfill humanitarian goals i mean maybe i mean that would that would probably be better no not really Okay. But, well, no, I mean, we, we got involved in World War II because of the bombing of Pearl Harbor. 
Mm. Yeah, that's fair. it. Had nothing. It had nothing to do with the Holocaust at all. Right. This is true. We actually yeah. didn't know about the Holocaust until the until we were inv- already in it. Until the invasion of Berlin. Yeah. Mm. Um. So I, I do want to talk a lot about like the implications of foreign foreign policy and like. You know some of the recent history and, and what it means. You know for the future, what should we be? Tra- wh- how should we be changing our approach to foreign policy and stuff like that? Because, because Afghanistan is well. I, I I said that because I want to put a pin in it because I did want to touch on the the financial costs because I just think it's kind of yes. interesting. So sure. yeah, let's do it. Um, let's do it. So there's there's it's a little bit t- tough to measure. Um, but I think the best measurement is came out of Brown U- University because what they did, what they took into account that other um, estimates did not was um, veterans' health costs and things like that factored into you know for for the next several years. Um, they said that uh, we have spent about five point eight trillion, and I think are estimated to spend still uh, up uh, about. 6.5 trillion total on Afghanistan and and oh sorry not on Afghanistan on post 9/11 US wars um you know related to 9/11 uh there will be continued obviously uh continued medical costs and stuff for all of those veterans for a long time so 6.5 trillion now really quickly here I want to just bring up Nathan's favorite best friend Jeff who is currently worth 198.7 billion dollars keep reaching for the stars jeff right so he can afford that means jeff you can only afford about 3% of an afghanistan war right now Andrew! The so keep keep going you got this uh team up with elon maybe and you guys will be there in no time right you have I, to consider that a lot of that money got recycled back into defense contractors um like companies that supply arms and tanks <laughs> and jets like a yes. lot of that money got quote-unquote recycled because it was going back into u.s businesses but yeah i mean it is it is a crazy amount of money and definitely the american businesses i want to support for sure extremely extremely wasteful um especially when you consider that the the bottom line that we're going to put on this whole thing is when we eventually start talking about the recent news which is the withdrawal yeah do you want to yeah let's jump do that lead us lead us into the the withdrawal so um like, this has been, you know, for a while, uh, the last U.S. president, um, I can't remember his name, uh, promised that there was a certain date by which U.S. troops would withdraw. Which, for all the things that I disagreed with the last U.S. president on, withdrawing from Afghanistan, I thought was an excellent, excellent move. Um, he provided a timetable. Um, however, rather ambitiously, this timetable extended to a point in time in which he may or may not be president in the future, which is interesting. Um, 
Well, and also depends on who you ask, apparently. Right. Um, and so, presidential power changed hands in the U.S. Um, the date started looming story. near. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying not to get sidetracked here. Um, and uh, the date was looming near, and it became clear that that working date was not going to be adequate time to withdraw the u.s forces so the date got pushed back there was this rose-tinted glasses optimism that i think was still operating in our foreign policy and in the way that we were handling this troop withdrawal we were still hoping that the afghani national guard so the the people who were uh, militarily in control of the country, quote unquote. And that, and that we had spent like over a decade training to be able to take over for us when we left. Right. And we left all of this equipment for, um, that they would be able to hold the country after we left. And then as the date uh, grew closer and closer and we started actually withdrawing us troops, um, we found that they were absolutely not able to hold the country. Um, or or I would even say interested in holding the country. Like, not even just able, just, like, may, didn't make an effort. Yeah, no, they... That's a, that's a complicated... Fact, that's a complicated... And, and I, a yeah, chunk of them yes. just joined the Taliban. Yeah, I mean, when, when your choice is that... Um, you know, you can survive I'm, or die. Right. And the, I mean, a lot fam- of people are going to choose to survive. Right. Yeah. And if they're threatening your family, for example, or you know that, oh, I still have to live here after these yeah. American assholes leave. Like, I'm not even putting a judgment on it. I'm just saying, like, it didn't happen in big numbers. Like, the Afghanistan National Guard didn't stand up to the Taliban virtually at all. Like, the and- Taliban just got to kind of drive in to Kabul. And I want to circle this back around to the point we were making from history that there's this anti-imperialist sentiment that yep. foreign people ruling the country that you you live in um, is not really seen as such a rosy, cheery thing. There's this narrative of your country being the place where empires go to die you know, being like a graveyard of empires. And you look at all these factors and like, it's not entirely surprising that they didn't look at the Americans as these liberators and heroes that we really expected to be seen as. I And this is like an echoed lesson from, we also learned from Iraq. I saw a video that was pretty eye opening. It was just, seven or eight minutes and if i can find it i'll get it in the doobly-doo but no promises because i saw it on reddit once like Hmm. a month and a half ago or something so (laughs) finding anything on reddit after you scrolled past it is basically impossible right but what this video was it was a camera uh, crew following around the trainers of these afghan soldiers and like their leaders too and so what they were doing is they were like, it showed sort of like a day in the life of, and they had the, the troops out and 
they're like it's 0800 every all the troops are supposed to be out on the road and like half of them are out there and like some of them are dressed like one of them doesn't have a helmet one guy is like holding his rifle the wrong way and they're like it's clear that they've been working on this exercise over and over and over again for a long time and the the guy sort of like they cut to like <laughs> like a um candid shot and he's just talking about how it's impossible to um, train some of these people because culturally they're just so different than we are. The the idea of having to be in this specific place at a specific time and like have all this stuff together, it's it, it's very hard to train them to do that. And then they cut to uh, basically they're walking through the camp and they're not supposed to be smoking hashish. And of course, as soon as they walk into every building, like there's a ton of them smoking hashish over and over and over again and then they come around a corner and who the person who's supposed to be like the leader of this group the afghan leader of this group uh they basically get a little interview with him and he's like i don't know what to do if i push these guys too hard they just walk off into the mountains like they don't have to be here and Mm -hmm. if they leave there's not the infrastructure to go after them it's not like a like somebody who walks off and uh of like a u.s base and um if they walk off you're just not going to find them again so they don't have the same sort of like they don't feel the same way about the country that like we do about the u.s and there's not the same sense of consequences if they just walk away as there is here well i i want to i want to contrast that real quick to the 20 year hardened Taliban fighters extremely well equipped and mm-hmm. have been fighting the arguably the world's greatest military for 20 years. And yep. You've got an idea of the the push and pull uh like the difference in the capabilities of these two groups. And and I don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that a 7 or 8 minute video that has been like <laughs> that. I don't know where it came from. That I don't know what news organization, if any, put it out. And I and it was of one group, so I don't know that it's representative of anybody except that one group. But it was kind of eye opening. Right, right. Well, so <sighs> here, all right. One of the one of the things that we have said a few times. And I think really is kind of a a question I want to come back to later is, oh, well, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. But putting that aside, right, we we were there. We were there. We have been there for 20 years. For for, you know, Trump and then Biden to to actually withdraw from Afghanistan, I think is a different I mean, a moral, ethical, but also strategic question. You know, the if you take off the table the answer of, well, we shouldn't have been there in the first place. We know, we, we know that when we leave, and, I mean, pretty quickly, obviously it was faster than they quite realized, but, like, we knew <laughs> it, was, it was just instead of, a matter instead of, of time. Right, instead of six months, which is what they were expecting, yeah. like six to ten months, it was eleven days. Yeah, like, it, was, it was it was nuts. But at the same, like, and that's what we mean, like when we say like crumbled. Like instead of a uh, 
instead of like a, a stout defense that eventually gave way, it was like, you know those little dolls that you have to keep your thumb pressed on the bottom to keep the the string te- tension so that it holds its form, and if you let go, it just crumples. It just flops over, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, so knowing that you know that that crumble that 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 fall was going to happen, knowing that 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 subsequently would lead to the Taliban taking over the government of the country, um, and would lead back to, um, you know, religious based law, um, authoritarian leadership, um, all of these things that we don't want. Um, like in Texas, whoa! Uh, it's but we're still not talking correct. about that today. It's still correct so, to leave. So yes. Um, all right. So and I want to be clear. You you mentioned uh, so. There's a couple of things. First of all, I think Trump set up. Well, we know this because we talked about this a little bit in our lightning lightning round episode, and I did a fact check in that. But like Trump never intended to leave. Right. He intended yeah. what he wanted to do was he wanted to have the government step down or uh, have some sort of weird powering, power sharing agreement with the Taliban. But he never planned on having all U.S. troops out of Afghanistan. What he was doing was either setting up a good position for himself when he came back into office or giving Biden some sort of time bomb. And I give Biden a lot of credit here because it wasn't going to be good for anybody to have done this. It was going to be messy and terrible no matter who did it. And I also want to be clear, I blame Obama for this too. Hmm. Obama could have gotten us out any time in his eight years and chose not to because it was messy. In fact, I'm pretty sure he increased our troop presence. He did. Yeah. He was was real bad. And uh, again, I've said Obama before uh, because of his uh, sort of he had quite the boner for using drones to shoot at people from the sky and yeah, American civilians. I mean, American to be fair, that's citizens. pretty awesome, though. American <laughs> I mean, citizens. Yeah. Yeah. It's all bad. I mean, I can't, like, yes, uh, like, it sucks that he killed American citizens. And, like, for a certain type of person, that's going to get them riled up. But, like, kids, like, and civilians, like... For me, I kind of don't care who, like, innocent people are innocent people. If they're from America, okay, we we have the same passport, I guess. But well, we shouldn't have been killing any innocent people. Right. Or, well... You're right, you're uh, right you but it's what? especially constitutionally heinous. I, yeah. I think, you know, it's yeah. not even whether or not they're innocent. It's they are not tried and convicted and, and yeah. being executed, you know, according to law. Um, they're just being picked off. Because the president said so. Well, and, and Biden's still doing the same thing. They're uh, whatever. It's, it's not there's good. a terrible story. There's a terrible story that came out recently where they killed five children and uh, a health a, a health worker uh, who delivered food to people who needed it, yeah. and said that it was a Taliban fighter and tried to cover it up. Yeah. Um, and it came out because uh, because international reporters drove out to where it happened, and there there were people there who lived with the guy and said, "No, this is who he was." 
This is who he worked for. He worked for a U.S. aid organization, and five kids ran out to his car because that's what they always do when he comes back with groceries or whatever, mm-hmm. and the drone strike killed them all. Mm-hmm. So fuck Joe Biden, too, because he's just like, I mean, we heard well, him and, use and Obama's like a, name. There was like a, a, a clip of a general, I forget which general, uh, who like had to apologize because I think... I think he said that they knew that it was the wrong guy, or, and they didn't call it off in time, or something like that. Like, it is messy. We're bad. We're very was, bad at war. Was this recent, or was this like in the Obama years? In the a last couple week. weeks ago. This, yeah. yeah. Oh, in the last I week. Mean, oh wow. I think it happened a couple of weeks ago. I uh, found. I read a story about it last week in terms of like when they actually came up with the yeah. information about who this person actually was. Yeah, a reporter. Like, is uh, you know what it was? It wasn't that they knew, they, they realized almost immediately that they had gotten the wrong person. Um, they didn't know beforehand, but they, they realized it right after and were trying to cover it up and a reporter uh, is, uh, unearthed it um, and they had to eat crow. That's what it was. There's a, there's a great episode of the Daily Podcast uh, from the New York Times, and I'll go ahead and make sure that makes it in the doobly-doo because mm. it lays it all out very well. And that way we don't have to talk about it for the rest of the time. But, like, I just don't want to pretend, like, this awful thing that Obama used to do and that Trump definitely did isn't, like, I, I have no interest in defending Biden who's continuing to do the same bullshit. Yeah. And not not regulating it in any way, shape, or form. Trump so I do almost wanna... started a war with Iran over it, but anyway. With, with over the, the with bombing the... in Syria? Well, yeah, Soleimani. When he yeah, got Soleimani, but anyway, um, also so, a war criminal, right? Just not not as bad as Bush. So, so I want to I want to explore. Oh, I'm sorry. I just want to say. I mean, you guys were pretty um, confident in your answers, but I'm 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 I mean, I'm not. I do I do. I 100 percent and and with the um, not our business principle, right? It's not our country. It's not ours to make those decisions. Um, on the other hand, I think, you know, to a certain extent, if if a country is being ruled by a terrorist organization or a violent authoritarian who is, suppre- you know, like, doing relatively, uh, I hesitate to say objectively, but, like, stuff that everybody in the world is like, no, you can't do that. So even when it comes to, like, China and, and the Uyghurs, right, everybody's like... You can I think, um, you know, to a certain extent, there is a moral obligation to take some sort of action to do something. Now, a, a military occupation probably doesn't need to be the thing that you do <laughs> for, but, for twenty um, years, maybe. Right, right. But, but I, I don't want to. I, I'm not really ready to say that we should just have nothing. Like we, that we should just let them do whatever they want to do to the people who live there, and whatever kind of cruelties they want to do are fine because it's not our country. Because I'm just so, kind of not cool with that. Right. We're so we're into like we need a full episode on this territory, but like we should be in China right now saving the Uyghurs, but we're yeah. not because financially we can't deal with it we couldn't mm-hmm. we couldn't do it the problem is with things like this you need to have a strong international organization where everybody donates resources troops and agrees on like 
in these conditions, we go in. We yeah. fix it right away. And it can't be the U.S. being the world's policeman anymore. So we need to like much. go in with other people. I and and I definitely want to do an episode um, specifically about like the the AUKUS uh, pact and and um, and and China and France and and everything involved there. Um, I think that is definitely a good full full episode to do, um, but. Hundred percent, and that's what the UN is supposed to be. That's what NATO is supposed to be, right? There are these organizations that are supposed to do that, but they always fall short um, because well, what they end up give... being more focused on is uh, is is imposing economic sanctions on countries that have like resources to offer and try and coerce them to to sell us their resources basically well, and when you and give, steal it. right and when you give the richest most powerful countries in the world veto power on whether the organization actually does anything or not mm-hmm. that organization is it's nothing it's it's no longer useful to anybody yeah yeah it's i mean at some point uh, this i think this is a separate episode but i would love to do <laughs> right. one in general on like on the process of globalization, but but what I do really really want to touch on because I know we're we're kind of getting to, to the end here, but I, I the one of the most important parts of this conversation to me is the future. Um, wh- what what does foreign policy for the U.S. What should it look like when a terrorist organization is running a country and oppressing its people? When uh, you know do do we have do we do something about it? What do we do about it? Um, how, uh, you know, do we take the initiative to organize, to, to like whip NATO, or not NATO, whip the UN into a beneficial organization or create something to take its place? Do we, I mean, we can't just go around and be Team America and like just blow up any country that is yucky to us right that's not gonna i mean fly. <laughs> i mean clearly we can because it's well, what we do now <laughs> we can try and obviously and like fail repeatedly um so i i want to address this inherent contradiction of the idea that we could have a humanitarian war that we could have a justified war that is waged on oppressors in order to liberate the people that are under the boot of these oppressors the problem with that is that wherever you go and try to do that you're going to cause bloodshed you're Uh going to cause even worse problems than the problems that you were trying to fix even in the process of trying to fix them i just don't think that that's how these things get done and so it can be incredibly frustrating to look at like the international solutions that you're trying are like sanctions and countries can just ignore that they just you know keep going their economy keeps churning and they're not really going to care about your trade sanctions and like i recognize that as a problem but what you're trying to do is you're trying to pull out a nail with a screwdriver like you're using the wrong you're using the wrong tool to say like 
oh, we're going to bomb the hell out of that country to free them. Like, that just yeah. doesn't that doesn't work. That's not I how you get that done. I think we're all on board with, with not military approach with the not military approach right throw that one out. i'm i'm still trying to figure out how to get a nail out with a screwdriver i feel like i'm the am i you could pry it flat out head, am i flathead or phillips because i think flathead might be easier oh yeah for sure if if we can i th- i in my mind i think probably at least the 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 easiest the most the most accessible approach is to get enough of the kind of like rich countries to decide to effectively blockade uh countries that are you know and do no trade at all with countries that are committing certain uh you know human rights violations and i think you have a list you you define it you set it out you know and, and you lay it out there and you say um these are the things that we're not going to put up with and if you commit these things like we're not going to do business with you and um and we're going to make sure that no one else does either and uh your country's going to starve well they're going to they're going to take away some of our um ballistics and weapons and ordnance because um on the UN Security Council uh the u.s has declined to join in a lot of the resolutions that are like against certain types of weapons because we really like our weapons yeah and we're not we're not going to easily just give them up like that no no but um but what i'm what i'm getting at just to kind of draw this to a close um so that nathan can make his point uh is that I, i i think that uh you know, unified action uh, that is clearly defined and uh, and, and uh, specifically targeted is probably the way to go. That 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 everyone, uh, the whole world, is basically on board with. And and my hope with that is that eventually it gets you to a point where um, everyone is kind of no one is committing these atrocities anymore, and we can all start working together on things. So yeah, I think. You can, you can do this. The problem is the U.S. will never do it because we've talked about it before, but especially I think Americans in general, conservatives specifically, are out for themselves. And I, like, I, I think that's an insult. I don't necessarily mean it as one, but like, the idea being that if I'm doing well, then that's good. That's my primary, primary goal. Yeah. What you need to do is you need to go into these countries and you need to make sure that people have enough food to eat and you need to make sure that people have places to stay and you need to make sure that like communities have an economy that they can actually like bolster themselves and that's the way you stop terrorism and that's the way you you stop these horrible situations from occurring in the first place. I mean the problem with that, that is... Like, you have to be proactive. You can't be reactive. And America is exactly the wrong country to do. Like, right. any of the rich countries are the wrong countries to do it because it's... Because that's we, the antithesis we don't see ourselves of, that our, of our whole system. That's, that's the opposite of our system. We don't believe in that. We don't believe in, you know, taking care of... Making sure everyone's taken care of. We believe in everyone make sure that they are taken care of. Yeah, take care of yourself and, and your neighbor. Well, I mean, not necessarily, but like if need be, well, yes. Not... And that's the mentality. 
Yeah. So, um, so like, what I'm yeah. saying is, what I'm saying is, the international community can take care of this stuff, absolutely. But it's not about sending in troops. It's about sending in rice. It's about yeah. sending in blankets. It's about sending in engineers to make sure that the problems in these places with abject poverty have a way to like make sure they're taken care of, and that the citizenry isn't in a isn't in a position where they are going to hate someone because their life is so awful and they had to watch their loved ones die because of a lack of resources or whatever. Yeah. 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 I mean, and, and I think your point, I just want to like underline something that you said earlier that, you know, America and all the other weird countries like us, weird, um, being, uh, Western industrialized, educated, rich and democratic, uh, countries are absolutely 100% the wrong countries to do that. Maybe, yeah. maybe like a Finlandy kind of country, I think. But um, none of these other countries have systems that take care of po- 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 poor people, that give poor people adequate, meets poor people's needs. We don't know how to do it. We don't do it for ourselves. We and well, it's not that we don't know how to do it, it's that we don't well, have any interest in doing it. It's not our goal yeah, to do it. Right. Good point. Good point. So yeah, I just kinda wanted to underline that. Like we're we're just <laughs> we're, the wrong countries are in charge of the worldwide organizations. The countries who are trying to exploit uh, small countries for their own gain uh are in charge of things right now and it needs to be the countries who are interested in helping other people for those people's gain. There we go. Somehow this this is the Republicans' fault. I'm not like not, <laughs> no. Not no 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 because this is this is bipartisan in America. This is this is yeah, one of the right. things that the Democrats and Republicans are in lockstep about have been for a very long time. And and I know that there are many many differences between the two, but this is one of those things where they this are is, arm in yeah. arm. Yeah, this is the Democrats' fault too, I guess. I mean, so I not, missed yeah. I missed the deadline for voting against uh, Bush Jr. the first the first time by like four days. Oh, I was I was <laughs> so four days fault. too young. <laughs> I was four days too young to vote, um, and uh, I was I was pissed because <laughs> well, good. I mean i I didn't really want to be involved in either of these wars. Yeah, no. I mean, I, at least you I felt remember, bad about it. I remember being pissed. I remember going to protests, and and, and I remember skipping school to go to protests, um, and then getting in trouble for that. Um, but like, a, that is a solid reason to skip school, though. Like, yeah, that but is, also, like, like as an you know. as an adult, that is a school skip day that you can be proud of. Sure, I, I, and I'm pretty sure my parents were like, they kind of had that like. You, respect we respect what you're doing but school is important and you're you know 15 or whatever right um but at the same time um at the same time like i i i was i was about 15 at that time like i maybe 16 or so um but i you know i i thought i had a good grasp um and, you know, 20 years later, uh, I 
have come to I have learned just oodles and oodles more about all of this politics and geopolitics and blah blah blah, blah economics and so blah everything um, and after learning all of that that I have learned the most important takeaway I have is I don't know squat <laughs> and like I mean that's an important part of I think just growing up but also you know it, it's it's um, something that I I it's a principle that I hold very dear uh, that if something seems simple you should pull the thread more because nothing nothing in life has simple answer and uh I, you know it's important to understand the complexities because it that's how you inform your decisions going forward and you know this experience in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and some of these other countries has been hopefully a very very big learning experience for American politicians and I think you know I think there's still a lot of the old guard that probably has not learned much from it and they no, are still kind of running think... <laughs> things but but I do think that there's a younger generation of you know millennials and and even gen zers who are going to start taking office and start doing things a little differently and i i'm here for it i i hope hopefully i'll even be a part of it you know like that that's great i i, I look forward to a time when we we when america is is tr actually trying to improve itself again when when and and trying to improve the world through through good means through peaceful means so before we put a pin on this thing, I we didn't address the people hanging from the bottom of God damn it. Carrier, I'm trying to end on a positive planes. note, motherfucker. No, no. <laughs> no, we still, um, we still got some stuff to talk about. At, at, at least one person okay. uh, like there there was like a footballer who um, you know, had absolutely nothing to do with the war or anything. Um, who like wound up hanging to the bottom of one of these cargo jets and falling to his death? Just like horrible scenes of people crowding the and there's uh, the and there's video there's video of that and I could never bring myself to watch it like I I can't like I couldn't watch that person fall but like on on the first day that it was announced people were grabbing onto planes to try and leave and they were falling on the roofs of uh, the houses of people who lived near the airport. Mm -hmm. Like, just awful, awful uh, situation. And there's been a lot of fallout and people trying to blame, like, Joe Biden specifically. Like, um, we didn't really talk about the, the fallout from this withdrawal and how people are trying to capitalize on it politically. It really kind of boils my blood when people are trying to like dig their heel in and say like oh look at what what a terrible job has been done like, right yeah i mean definitely there there are valid criticisms and there are um ways in which this withdrawal like absolutely should have been done better we should have looked at it without rose-tinted glasses and said you know hey we need to start withdrawing people months or years ah before so this is this is what i would love to do real quick i'd love to have a lightning round about some of these some of these concerns because for example the thing that you just brought up in terms of like getting people out earlier yeah what i had heard 
at least from a military perspective. And maybe it's right and maybe it's wrong, but like we know the types of people that Biden was listening to, which I would also say at least we know he was listening to people, which is not mm-hmm. something that would have happened under a Trump presidency. Um, but the, the concern was that as soon as you start, even slowly, just like taking Americans and their families out of the country, that doesn't go unnoticed. People don't notice, like people don't, uh, people don't watch the Americans leave their neighborhoods and not realize that something is going on. The worry was that if you start pulling these people out early, that it's going to cause a rush and like the thing that happened anyway would have happened earlier and without them being in a position to do anything about it. Not that they did a good job at it, but at least that was the thought process behind it. You can't take people out early because then you lose control over the timeline at that point. Right. But what, what really disgusts me is the political point scoring that people are trying to rub Biden's nose in it and saying like, Oh, look at what a terrible job that he's done. He's a disgrace. And that we should have had Trump in charge of doing all of this. Like, <laughs> Trump was like <laughs> the reason that this whole ball started rolling in the first place. It was his idea. Like, literally, it was his idea. Like, you don't get to have your cake and eat it, too, you know? I, I personally was shocked that the Republicans would uh, fall to uh, such crass tactics. <sighs> that is so unlike them. Yeah. Um, all right. Even even about, if some of those I mean, even if some of those criticisms are legit, technically, uh, technically, next, it wasn't actually his plan. <laughs> next, uh, let's talk about um, stuff left behind in Ooh, our in our I little lightning round here. That is a big one. So there are like Humvees, tanks, helicopters, uh, helicopters, night dignity. vision goggles, a billion rifles. Yeah, just like various guns and stuff. Tons of guns and ammo. So here's the (laughs) we we heard you say the dignity thing before. Okay. (laughs) Um, Well, you didn't laugh enough. uh, So so. (laughs) first of all, I would say there there's a couple of things. Uh, There's been this when we left Vietnam. Guess what we left behind? A bunch of stuff. This is what happens when you retreat from a twenty year war. Like, stuff gets left behind. And the thing is, we weren't leaving it behind. We were leaving it for our, like, the Afghan soldiers that we've been training for over a decade to use against the Taliban when they came in, and then they didn't use it. Right, but we could have more realistically assessed their chances, Yeah, I suppose. I don't, I don't think there's... I don't think it's realistic... To like, I don't think you could have predicted that they would have failed so spectacularly. You know, like I'm I'm not a military guy, but I feel like there are people out there who are experts in these things. I am not one of them, but these people were consulted, and they said eight to ten months or six to ten months. I forget what it was. Um, mm. well, and so like I I like clearly somebody was desperately wrong. But I'm not saying you you can give your your best guess and be wrong and not have you know lied about it. It it doesn't like the information just might not have been out there. I just don't know. From what I understand 
from Jen Briney's episode about it, from some of the stuff, some of the hearings mean, and stuff. You mean that, friend of the pod, Jen Briney? Yes, friend of the pod, Jen Briney, uh, her episode Check of out Congressional, Congressional Dish. Dish. Um, about the afghanistan war she listened to a number of hearings there's some nice clips and stuff in there so according to a friend of the pod jen briney she did an episode of her podcast congressional dish about the afghanistan war um and in it she talked a bit about how a lot of this information was in fact known and documented within the private defense contractors who were there working but because they did not, for, for some reason, they did not have to disclose them. Yeah, we do war real bad. Um, and We're so, bad at war. yeah, so basically it was the government had bad information. The companies that the government hired gave them that bad information to make themselves not look as bad. And by the way, um, some of the other stuff, because she's done a number of episodes on several of these different, uh, several of our wars uh, and stuff abroad. Um, and, you know, this is no exception. One of the things that they would do is when it comes time to, like, refill, to, to like, send supply orders, they would go through everything that they could um, and, like, burn it, literally, set it on fire but burn it so that they could get a new one um, or do like minor damage to it so they could sell it to a local or something like that um, so that they could max out their resupply orders every time so that they were always maxing out their government contracts every time. Of course. Maybe, um, maybe yeah. like just using capitalism in every aspect of everything we do is not the best choice. <laughs> this like is why... Got- this is why we can't like help the world. <laughs> so we're the worst. Yeah. Oh God, we suck. All right, so, last last lightning round topic: uh, people we left behind. So there are a number of Afghans who helped us, knowing that it was putting themselves and their families in danger, either as drivers or uh, as. Uh, Translators. Yeah, translators. Translators is like the obviously the the, the number one, one yeah. thing. Local um, guides. And the thing is, we did not do enough to actually like track down those people or give them away to the airport or actually get them out. I'm less concerned about the Americans. Like again, I know I'm supposed to be more concerned about the Americans, but when we finished up, when we actually like sent that last plane out of Afghanistan. There were less than a hundred Americans left in Afghanistan, and all of them wanted to be there because they had jobs, or they had family, or they had built a life there and had no interest in leaving Afghanistan. And that's their choice. So I think we actually did a pretty good job of getting Americans out. I think we probably did. We we got a lot of volume of people out. I keep on hearing stories about people who helped us who uh, are facing really horrible consequences although i will say the taliban this time are saying they want to be like more cuddly and like make sure that women have opportunities and that everybody gets a free, everybody gets a free pass but the thing is it's the taliban like they don't actually control their soldiers that way right and i mean yeah they they, they say that but also they are still executing people and implementing uh you know uh, sharia law well, to yeah, so some at least 
bit by bit. I don't think they're Fact check, fact check, fact check. And welcome back to Fact Check. According to the Council on Foreign Relations, quote, Since regaining control, the Taliban have taken actions reminiscent of their brutal rule in the late 1990s. They have cracked down on protesters, reportedly detained and beaten journalists, and reestablished their ministry for the promotion of virtue and prevention of vice, which under previous Taliban rule enforced prohibitions on behavior deemed, quote, un-Islamic. The group's acting higher education minister said women will be permitted to study at universities in gender-segregated classrooms and wearing Islamic attire. So basically, it sounds like this is your grandfather's Taliban, or father's Taliban, I guess. Whatever. Point is, they're still religious authoritarians. Anyways, let's get back to the show. Oh, you mean you mean like in Texas? Okay, no, no that's okay. that's not, Christian. Not version. like in Texas. That's that's yeah. Okay, that different 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 Sharia law. But yeah, they're not the smart kind. Anyway, so so who so I think... wants who wants the beat a dead episode on location in Afghanistan? <laughs> Not live, it. live on the street. Yeah, I'll go. I'll definitely get murdered. Okay, there we go. We got it. Stay tuned for that. Uh, stay tuned for that uh, mini. I would have um, absolutely zero chance of surviving to, to any any like religious um, authoritarian place. They would not like me there. So I think. Anybody who's blaming Biden for this, uh, sure, okay. I mean, I think he deserves a certain amount of uh, blame. I think Trump deserves a certain amount of blame. I think Obama deserves a certain amount of blame. And uh, who, who boys he does Bush deserve quite a bit of blame. But this has been a problem that's well, been brewing for a long time. And yeah, I, I was going to say, I think Biden how gets about some... Clinton and other Bush and Reagan? And you know what I mean? Like, keep. Well, right. I think. I think Reagan, for sure, uh, because we have the Russia situation. And then, yes, we, we weren't in there for other Bush or Clinton. I mean. Um, but we definitely could have done some stuff. That, we, were, like, we were busy doing Operation Desert Storm. <sighs> Gross. Yeah, we. Yeah, we, we're, we're pretty we were terrible. Not... We're, we're bad at war. <laughs> Our, yeah, we just weren't actively engaged militarily but i mean like i said earlier clinton was bombing in afghanistan i think yeah this is like this is one of those like situations where yes you can absolutely both sides this situation Mm -hmm. and the thing is biden is getting the blame now because he's the guy in the big chair and i think that's fair but what we knew uh, you know whoever it was was like when we pulled out like the the Afghani government did not have enough power to stop the Taliban uh, from taking over. Uh, at no point in our twenty year occupation did they have that going for them. And so you know, and and who knows how long it would have been before you know if we had continued to stay there. So so ultimately, right. like what happened was what was going to happen, whether it had had happened under Bush, Obama, Trump. Biden, future president Zanaborg, because I assume it'll be an alien. 
<laughs> when I, I do want to say we're, we're out now more or less, but our responsibilities there are not done. We, we still have a responsibility, but I also want to see the Afghan people be able to determine what the fuck they want. There's a poll that was taken in 2019 that 85% of Afghans don't uh, believe in or trust the Taliban. So what they have now is not what they want. It's just that they wanted us even less than that. Right. I, I have absolutely no illusions that us withdrawing at the time that we did in the way that we did is the best case scenario. Um, at this point, I am willing to settle for the the least bad. We, yeah, the the we are out of Afghanistan scenario. Right, um, and I whatever, don't think it gets whatever form that that takes. And I don't think I mentioned this in the mini that we just had, but Biden sort of mentioned how does this get better in a year or five years or twenty years down the line? It doesn't. This leaving just gets worse and worse and worse the longer we're there. And so, if you can't leave well, leave quickly. Yeah, I don't I don't want to sugarcoat that, like, you know, this, oh, it couldn't have gone any better, and that, like, this was the best withdrawal could have possibly gone. Right. My bottom line is that it is untenable for us to permanently occupy Afghanistan forever, unless we decide that we are going to literally displace the population that lives there. Like, I just don't see a way that it is feasible for us to continually be in that country forever. And I, like, I don't want to be. Like, I I don't think that we have the moral imperative to do that either. So, did you guys end up. I will take the withdrawal that we got. Did you guys see, end up seeing, they got video of the last soldier, like, climbing on the plane leaving because i thought one thing that they did well is we were supposed to be out i i forget what the actual like date May. was but no no i mean when this time when we were supposed to be out i think we were, we were supposed to be out at uh precious or whatever, and we ended up getting out like at 3 a.m the day before um and so like we left in the middle of the night and like we were still supposed to be there the next day and weren't to try and because there had been the suicide bomb and like Biden kept saying like there's going to be another one of these like he was he was like not um he he was not mincing words on it he expected there to be another suicide bomb because they weren't in, in control of the people coming up to the airport once you got into the airport that was those were american troops but everything else was Taliban troops, and Taliban troops weren't checking for guns or explosives or anything. They didn't know how to do that. So I think we just, like, got out of there as fast as possible. Mm. You know, um, there, there's uh, there's another aspect to this whole Afghanistan puzzle that we haven't talked about at all yet. Is it Precious Moments? It is. Yeah! Ooh, I was, I had been setting myself up to say that the name of the plane that the last guy got out on was Precious Moments, Mm. but then I was like, oh no, I got to talk about a suicide bomber. That's probably not a good transition. So, (laughs) so I appreciate you doing that, Andy. We we take the transition that we get. Well, (laughs) I usually don't do the transitions, but I felt that one in my bones, so I went for it. Absolutely. 
I did kind of steal it from you, but I appreciate you. You gave me a good alley oop. Yeah, no, no, it was uh, good. I, I'm I'm down with the teamwork. That that was that was that was your transition. I was just assisting. Right. Um, I have a great. So I don't know if it's great. It could be awful. Uh, but I have a very quick precious moment. Um, I was out. I, I've been doing a, a little bit of Ubering here and there, and uh, I have a couple that I've been driving to uh, Browns games for years now. Mm. And they live pretty far out, but I was driving to get them, and I passed this restaurant. (laughs) I was past this restaurant, and I don't know why, but it made me laugh super hard. The name of the restaurant is Taco Tuesday, and Mm. like I was like, "Wait a second! Like nobody likes Tuesday. That is not a day of the week that anybody looks forward to. Like people look forward to Friday." I understand the name of a TGI Fridays, for example, but or Saturday. Saturday is very popular as well. Exactly, but I can't remember the last Tuesday. I was like, "Ooh, it's Tuesday." So <laughs> just for whatever reason, like tacos are popular, and I'm sure they make a fine taco. But I just like the idea of naming your restaurant after a Tuesday because that that can't be common. Like that can't be something that happens. I'm gonna have Stay to like next week. do a Google. Yeah, Ruby I'll... Tuesdays. Yeah. Oh, oh yeah. that's right. Yeah. 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 Um, but also, I'll point out that Taco Tuesday is like a common practice in like school lunches or like oh, prison make... everywhere. I make. Yeah, I make Taco Tuesdays in our house. Like yeah, I do Taco yeah. Tuesdays here, just just cause. Right. There was a guy that was suing people over, like, the use of Taco Tuesday because it was, like, I, I, and I'll probably need a fact check on this, but it was, like, Bob's Taco Stand or something. And <laughs> he he invented the Taco Tuesday and started <laughs> right. suing anyone else that was using his, his intellectual property. Mini fact check. Taco John's, a chain restaurant based in Wyoming, trademarked the slogan, Taco Tuesday in December of 89 and has the rights to it across the whole U.S. except for New Jersey where a state copyright already existed. So if you use it, be prepared for a sternly worded cease and desist order to end up on your doorstep as they send them out a lot. Mini fact check. Nice. Well, I know a restaurant that he has a serious chance against. Yeah, yes. there you go. <laughs> so stay tuned right, next was... week, everyone. We're going to be coming to you live from Taco Tuesday. Yeah. In Afghanistan. In Afghanistan. <laughs> there probably some pretty serious like franchising opportunities out there now. Mm. <laughs> that just opened up. Lauren Bobert, uh, she sent a, a release calling to impeach Biden, but she uh, messed But did she? She I, I messed don't... up the logo, and it says Imeach Biden. <laughs> I M E A C H. And I actually, my attention was drawn to this by a, a tweet from Mark Hamill, um, yeah, who we would love to have on the pod at some point. Luke Skywalker himself. Um, he he wrote Imeachment now. <laughs> Which, I love Mark Hamill's stuff has been like so on point the last few years. It's great. He's great, isn't he? Like yeah. I mean, yes. he did a great job as Joker. Uh he did a great job as Luke Skywalker. But uh, his Twitter is amazing. His Twitter yeah. is fire. 
people have uh, said like I've seen him get like millions of likes from just like putting a period and so then he'll like retweet that with just like a period <laughs> he's great uh, that's awesome hi i'm trevor moore did you know that it's illegal to um, say i want oh. to kill the president yeah, of the united it. states Sorry. of america uh, were you, it's illegal were you it's a federal well offense. so this one one's kind of unfortunate that you're not allowed to say trevor moore and it was okay uh, for me to say it the right the then because i was just know, telling you that uh, it's illegal the, uh, to say sketch comedy group i want um, to kill the president of the united states of america uh, i enjoyed their sketch comedy i'm not actually saying it i'm just Letting like you know that some, it's illegal to say that. It's classics, kind of like a public service. The, uh, I'm letting you know so that you don't accidentally go out and say episode. something like that. <laughs> yeah, um, like but what's interesting is that it's it's very illegal There's some to really say, funny bits. Um, there's the one really that I always remember. The one I always remember is him like, of the United States of America. People, like, you can't say, I'm That's going illegal. to kill the Extremely president. Illegal. Oh, yeah. Not yeah no, that one, that one is classic, but too. Not illegal that to actually say made it to the Supreme <laughs> Court. Um, there was a Supreme <laughs> Court case in which it's a guy was quoting sentence, that episode. But it may have nothing to do with the sentence uh, before that. So that's perfectly fine. And they perfectly were trying illegal. to decide if that I was also threat. found out that it's incredibly illegal, extremely illegal, to go on television and say something like the best place to fire a mortar launcher at the White House would be from the roof of the Rockefeller Hewitt building because of minimal security and you'd have a clear line of sight to the president's bedroom. Insanely illegal. Ridiculously, recklessly, insanely illegal. Yet even more illegal to show an illustrated diagram. Insanely illegal. Ridiculously, horribly felonious because they will come to your house in the middle of the night and they will lock you up extremely against the law. Uh, one thing that is technically legal to say is that we have a group that meets Fridays at midnight under the Brooklyn Bridge and the password is Six Emperor Tyrannus. But anyway, yeah, so um, just like this brilliant comedy group, and unfortunately he passed away recently. He apparently fell off of a balcony at his house, um, which is just really unfortunate Tragic. to have, like, you know, survived a year of COVID and all of the terrible things going on in the world and uh, to have that be the unfortunate way that you go. But uh, rest in peace for Trevor Moore. Yeah, I mean, uh, especially with uh, with with Norm recently, like those are two. Oh man, Norm! Ugh. I mean, I know we talked about it on a previous episode. Yeah, we talked about it last but, uh, last week. But yeah, we're losing you know, everybody. What's going on? It's been it's not a great year. Um, 
But right. you guys remember when we used to complain about 2016 being a bad year? <laughs> yeah, that was. <laughs> oh, and Th- those and were hilarious memes too. Bismarck he died this year too. Yeah, yeah, it's been rough. It's been a tough year. Also, oh, and like, uh, DMX. Also, like, like seven hundred thousand Americans and I like mean, yeah, three point two million people around the world. There, there's that too. Well, anyway, well, precious moments. Woo! Uh, Andy, what do you got? Okay, my precious moment is a TV show that I recently binged. Um, so it's not a new, super new show. It's not brand new. Um, it's, it came out in 2019. Only six episodes. Uh, the show is Trigger Warning with Killer Mike. I don't oh, know if yeah. you guys have watched that show. That show is great. Holy moly. That show Tri- is so good. It is outrageous. First of all, it is absolutely hysterical he does some pretty wild stunts and like they're <laughs> real it's real um and i mean like yeah <laughs> cripacola is <laughs> and so blood good. pop he, One, he, he and gets so the for... crips and the bloods to start producing soda <laughs> and, and for real. people you who don't buy this soda right. you can go buy it and for people who don't know killer mike is part of run the jewels which is uh, an amazing hip hop group, but also sure. gained notoriety for white people more or less uh, in 2016 or I guess 2014, 2015, when he traveled with Bernie Sanders on his campaign to really push for him to get to um, make inroads with younger people to to get his politics out there. And yeah. Killer Mike is this like in the show shows it. He is incredibly intelligent and like pushes for these progressive politics, and I, I, I just love the guy. I love him. Right. Well, and and he does it in like in just an absolutely wild way. It's a it's a it's a blast. It's so much fun, and then it's it's also very very real and informative. So yeah, um, and all like I involves all kinds of people. Just strongly. great. Oh, yeah. So what's so, so what's the gist of the show? Is it like a sketch comedy show? Um, or? So each episode, he kind of explores a different issue by like real world experimentation. I guess you could say it's a little. Um, I don't want to give away to explain, too much, but right? like think like kind of like a social Bill Nye kind of thing. Like <laughs> he, 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 that's and, about right. I mean, like, but he's also a rapper, not a nerd. Fair um, enough. It's, it, it, I'll have to check um, it out. Yeah, it's. I don't want to spoil too much, well, but like... Yeah, we'll drop a trailer in the doobly-doo. It's super good. You're supposed to be watching Cowboy Bebop. Yeah, I, I am also working on that. I want to... That's one of those... Well, this one was too, but I ended up just kind of binging it. This is definitely a show I want to pay attention to. But Cowboy Bebop is a show I want to pay attention to as well. And a lot of times, um, I, especially lately, the last few weeks, I've just kind of been in a place where I want to have the TV on as almost more like background noise, sort of background just like noise, comforting yeah. a blanket of sound, um, rather than something I want to actually pay attention to. So I, I'll be getting back up in, onto that as I start to kind of feel a little bit better. Uh, it's, well, a little bit, I, know, it's like one of those depression slumps where like, um, where I just don't want to like, I don't want to have to engage with it. That just sounds exhausting to me, you know. That's where I. Was. <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. That's, yeah, I have a few shows. Like, I think that's where most people are with like The Office. 
Mm-hmm. Um, for me, it's the West Wing. I've watched that mm. thing so many times that I can just have it on in the background and be like, "You get them, Toby," as I'm like making stuff <laughs> in the kitchen or whatever. Yeah. Um, speaking of making stuff in the kitchen, I really need to come up with a catchphrase. Oh, I hope we give you a few things to think about this week. Love you. Bye. Bye. See you next time, live from Afghanistan. Or probably not. Probably probably the same uh, level of seriousness of me getting that face tattoo. But maybe maybe Taco Tuesday, that's that that's more realistic. Uh yeah, we can have Taco Tuesday. <laughs>